Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part two of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. In this episode, I will be discussing sleep for learning and memory, sleep and its association with Alzheimer's, and sleep and its association with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer. So part two starts out with this satirical ad. Scientists have discovered a revolutionary new treatment that makes you live longer. It enhances your memory and makes you more creative. It makes you look more attractive. It keeps you slim and lower, lowers your food cravings. It protects you from cancer and dementia. It wards off cold and flu. It lowers your risk of heart attacks and stroke, not to mention diabetes. You'll even feel happier, less depressed, and less anxious. Are you interested? So it's this very satirical ad. Obviously, he's talking about sleep, and you would think this is some sort of miracle uh, drug, some sort of fountain of youth, but of course, all these benefits are stemming from just a good night's sleep and a good sleep routine. And even back in, t- in 1611, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, he even has this quote that says, sleep is the chief nourisher in life's feast. So even all the way back then, we knew the importance of sleep. So sleep for the brain, sleep has proven itself time and time again as a memory aid, both before learning, to prepare your brain for initially making new memories, and after learning, to cement those memories and prevent forgetting. So sleep before learning refreshes our ability to initially make new memories. For fact-based informations, there's a specific region in your brain called the hippocampus that helps apprehend these passing experiences and binds their details together. He did this experiment and having observed that sleep restores the brain's capacity for learning and making room for new memories, he went in search of like exactly what it was about sleep that transacted that transacted transacted that restoration benefit. So analyzing the electrical brainwaves of those in the nap group region brought about the answer. So the memory refreshment was related to lighter stage two deep NREM sleep, and also specifically the short powerful burst of electrical activity that he calls sleep spindles. So the more sleep spindles an individual obtained during the nap in this experiment, the greater the restoration of their learning when they woke up. Perhaps more remarkably, as he analyzed the sleep spindle burst activity, he observed a strikingly reliable loop of electrical currents pulsing through the brain that repeated about every 100 to 200 milliseconds. So the pulses kept weaving a path back and forth between the hippocampus again, where there's short-term, you know, limited storage space, and a far larger long-term storage site called the cortex. You can think of the cortex as this sort of like memory hard drive. And in that moment, when he saw that electrical current between the hippocampus and the cortex, he had just became uh, privy to this like transaction between this, um, you know, long-term secure vault of the of the cortex from the from like this short-term memory in the hippocampus. So in doing so, sleep had kind of cleared out the hippocampus, replenishing this short-term information uh, with free space. So again, we're essentially making new room for the hippocampus to gain this short-term information. And all that information that you did learn is going from the hippocampus to the cortex and being stored for this long-term memory. Again, this is all due to the Uh, sleep spindles that are being created during stage two of NREM. Now, he found that seniors are unable to generate these sleep spindles to the same degree as young, healthy adults 
suffering about a 40% deficit. So this led to a prediction. The fewer sleep spindles an, an old adult had on a, on a particular night, the harder it should be for them to cram new facts into their hippocampus the next day. So that makes sense, since they have not received as much overnight refreshments of a short-term memory capacity. So he conducted the study, and that is exactly what he found. The fewer the number of spindles that an elderly uh, brain produced on a, on a particular night, the lower the learning capacity of that older individual the next day, making it more difficult for them to memorize the list of facts that they had presented to them. So that was sleep before learning. How about sleep after learning? So the, the second benefit of sleep from memory comes after learning. One that effectively clicks the quote-unquote save button on those newly created files. In doing so, sleep protects newly acquired information, affording immunity against forgetting, an operation we call consolidation. So we consolidate these memories. And that sleep sets in motion the process of memory consolidation, and it has been recognized, uh, you know, for a long time, um, as far as back as this like Roman uh, rhetorician named Quintilian, who lived back in like 50 A.D. This guy stated again, this is back in 50 A.D. that it is a curious fact of which the reason is not obvious, that the interval of a single night will greatly increase the strength of the memory. Whatever the cause, things which could not be recalled on the spot are easily coordinated the next day. And time itself, which is generally accounted uh, one of the causes of forgetfulness, actually serves to strengthen the memory. So this guy, all the way back in 50 AD, was saying this kind of stuff. So we know we have a good consolidation after a good night's sleep. But it wasn't until 1924, when two German researchers, John Jenkins and Carl Dallenbach pitted sleep and wake against each other to see which one won for a memory-saving benefit. So their study participants first learned a list of verbal facts. Thereafter, the researchers tracked how quickly the participants forgot those memories over an eight-hour time interval, either spent awake or across a night of sleep. So time spent asleep helps cement the newly learned chunk of information preventing them from fading away. In contrast, an equivalent time spent awake was deeply hazardous to recently acquired memories, resulting in an accelerated trajectory of forgetting. So this is pretty obvious that with a good night's sleep, you're going to consolidate these memories compared to someone who is staying up all night. And again, these experimental results of Jenkins and Dallenbach have been replicated time and time again. And you probably have your personal anecdote of trying to pull an all-nighter and not remembering something, you know, the next day. Uh, and it was early night sleep rich in deep NREM that won out in terms of providing superior memory retention um, savings relative to late REM uh, rich sleep. So it's really this NREM sleep. So to move forward, um, let's see. Okay, and then... Up to this point, we've discussed the power of sleep after learning to enhance remembering and avoiding forgetting. However, the capacity to forget can, in certain contexts, be as important as the need uh, for remembering, both in day-to-day -day life and clinically as well. So, moreover, forgetting is not just beneficial to delete stored information we no longer need. It also lowers the brain resources 
required for retrieving those memories we want to retain, similar to the ease of finding important documents on a neatly organized clutter-free desk. So he did this he did this experiment where he had a list of so he had, he brought in a bunch of young graduates and he had them remember a list of words. And after they would show the word, it would show either an R for remember or an F for forget. So again, they're showing these college students words, and after the word is displayed, they're showing him R for remember and F for forget. So sleep powerfully yet very selectively boosted the retention of those words previously tagged for remembering, yet actively avoided the strengthening of those memories tagged for forgetting. So we're seeing in this experiment that sleep itself, we are able to remember what we wanted to remember and forget what we want to forget. Counter earlier assumptions in the 20th and 21st century, sleep does not offer a general non-specific preservation of all information you learn during the day. Instead, Sleep is able to offer a far more discerning hand in memory improvement, one that preferentially picks and chooses what information is and is not ultimately strengthened. So that's something interesting. And he goes on to talk about sleep for other types of memory. For example, sleep is very important for like motor skill memory. And it's also needed for, um, you know, creativity as well. Uh, But I did want to move forward uh, because this is going to be a lot of information in here. And it's a pretty long part too. Uh, So I'm going to move forward. He talks about this uh, sleep deprivation in the brain. A lot of this stuff he discusses was very trivial. For example, like, um, you know, a bad night's sleep is in in association with like concentration and falling asleep while driving and you know, a lack of sleep makes us more emotionally irritable and just snap. And how pulling all-nighters are awful for, like, college students. And it doesn't really work. Um, very, like, obvious stuff. Uh, but what I wanted to spend the majority of this podcast on was sleep and its association with Alzheimer's disease. So I'm going to move forward to the section about Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Let me find it. Okay, sleep and Alzheimer's disease. So a lack of sleep is fast becoming recognized as a key lifestyle factor determining whether or not you would develop Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's, this condition originally identified in 1901 by this German physician, Dr. Aloysius Alzheimer, has become one of the largest public health and economic challenges in the 21st century. More than 40 million people suffer from this debilitating disease. One in 10 adults over the age of 65 now have some suffered from Alzheimer's disease. So before describing how sleep is beneficial, we need to first describe how sleep disruption and Alzheimer's are causally linked. So there are many etiologies or reasons for why people develop Alzheimer's and there's a lot of, again, for example, like people say that you have low amounts of acetylcholine, uh, you're not producing enough acetylcholine from the basal nucleus of Maynard, and you're not getting enough like um, communication between neurons. Others are saying, okay, our brain is not using glucose as well as it used to. It's sort of this type 3 diabetes where, you know, we have glucose, but we're not using it efficiently or properly. Um, but really, one of the most uh, backed up theories of Alzheimer's disease 
is the accumulation of these specific proteins in our brains called beta amyloid and also tau. So Alzheimer's disease is associated with the buildup of a toxic form of protein called beta amyloid, which aggregates in sticky clumps or plaques within the brain. Amyloid plaques are poisonous to neurons, killing the surrounding brain cells. What is strange, however, is that amyloid plaques only affect some parts of the brain and not others. And what struck Dr. Matthew Walker about this unexplained pattern was the location in the brain where amyloids accumulate early in the course of Alzheimer's disease and most severely in the late stages of the condition. That area is the middle part of the frontal lobe which, as you will remember, is the same brain region essential for generation of the deep NREM sleep in healthy young individuals. Dr. Matthew Walker wondered whether the reason patients with Alzheimer's disease have such impaired deep NREM sleep was, in part, because the disease erodes the very region of the brain that normally generates this key stage of slumber. So we're getting this accumulation of amyloid in the middle part of our frontal lobe where deep NREM sleep is being disrupted. So he goes and does a study with this PET scan and he shows that he he found that the more amyloid deposits there were in the middle region of the frontal lobe, the more impaired deep sleep quality was in that older individual. And building on these findings, his recent work had added a key piece in the jigsaw puzzle of Alzheimer's disease. He had discovered a new pathway through which amyloid plaques may contribute to memory de- decline later in life. Something has largely, largely been missing in his understanding of how Alzheimer's disease uh, works. So he mentioned that toxic, toxic amyloids, they end up getting deposited only in some parts of the brain and not others. And despite Alzheimer's disease being typified by memory loss, the hippocampus is, for some reason, uh, mysteriously unaffected by this amyloid protein. So how does amyloid cause memory loss in Alzheimer's disease patients when amyloid itself does not affect memory areas of the brain? So is that making sense? You would think that people with Alzheimer's disease would have um, aberrations in their hippocampus, but it's really this frontal lobe. While other aspects of the disease may be at play, it seems plausible to me or to Dr. Matthew Walker that there was a missing intermediary factor, one that was transacting the influence of amyloid in one part of the brain on memory, which depended on a different region of the brain. So was sleep disruption really this missing factor? So to test out this theory, he had elderly patients with varying levels of amyloid, low to high, in their brains, learn a kind of this new list of facts in the evening. And the next morning, After recording their sleep in the lab, they tested them to see how effective their sleep had been at cementing and holding on to these memories. And he really discovered this chain reaction. Those individuals with the highest level of amyloid deposits in the frontal region of the brain had the most severe loss of deep sleep and, as a knockout consequence, failed to successfully consolidate new memories. Overnight forgetting rather than remembering had taken place in these individuals. The disruption of deep NREM sleep was therefore a hidden middleman brokering the bad deal between amyloid and memory impairment in Alzheimer's disease. This was the missing link. Deep NREM sleep was the missing link 
between the memory impairment and Alzheimer's disease. So he poses another question. Can a lack of sleep actually cause amyloid to build up in your brain to begin with? Around the same time that we were conducting our studies, Dr. Mikan uh, Nettergaard at the University of Rochester made one of the most spectacular discoveries in the field of sleep research in recent decades. Working with mice, Nettergaard found that a kind of sewage network called the glymphatic system exists within the brain. I've definitely talked about the glymphatic system before, but I think it's so fascinating and interesting that I'm going to be discussing it again. So the glymphatic system was discovered by this man named Dr. Nettergaard. And just as the lymphatic system drains contaminants from your body, the glymphatic system collects and removes dangerous metabolic contaminants generated by hard work performed from your, by your neurons in the brain, rather like a support team surrounding some sort of like elite athlete. Although the glymphatic system, the support team, is somewhat active during the day, Nettergaard and his team discovered that it is during sleep that this neural sanitization works uh, really kicks in. So about 10 to 20 fold compared to when you're awake. So what's the actual mechanism by which this actually, this actually works? Nettergaard made a second astonishing discovery, which explained why the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, is so effective in flushing out the debris at night. The glial cells of the brain were shrinking in size by up to 60% during NREM sleep. And when these glial cells shrunk, it really enlarged the space around the neurons, allowing for the CSF to really clean out the metabolic uh, refuse left by the day's neural, neural activity. So again, what does this have to do with Alzheimer's disease? One piece of toxic debris evacuated by the glymphatic system during sleep is amyloid. The other protein that I discussed was tau. So tau is this other protein and it accumulates inside the, the neuron. It is this kind of stress molecule produced by neurons when they combust energy and oxygen during the day. <coughs> and should you experimentally prevent a mouse from getting NREM sleep and keep it awake instead, there is this immediate increase in amyloid deposit within the brain. So again, we're seeing this causal link between sleep deprivation and the accumulation of this tau and amyloid in the brain. And just to conclude, inadequate sleep and the pathology of Alzheimer's disease interact in this vicious cycle. Without sufficient sleep, amyloid plaques build up in the brain, especially in deep sleep gen generating regions, attacking and degrading them. The loss of deep NREM sleep caused by this assault therefore lessens the ability to remove amyloid from the brain at night, resulting in greater amyloid deposition. So one more time, more amyloid, less deep sleep, less deep sleep, more amyloid. So if someone were to ask you tomorrow, what's one of the single greatest things you can do to prevent Alzheimer's disease? The answer would be to get a good night's sleep. So I hope you enjoyed that passage. I'm going to be moving forward to sleep and its association with cancer, heart disease, um, and also shorter life. Okay. 
So sleep in the cardiovascular system. Progressively shorter sleep was associated with a 45% increased risk of developing or dying from coronary heart disease within 7 to 25 years from the start of the study. Over a 14-year period, those sleeping 6 hours or less were 400 to 500% more likely to suffer one or more cardiac arrest than those sleeping more than 6 hours. Part of the reason that the heart suffers so dramatically under the weight of sleep deprivation concerns blood pressure. Another reason is because of the process of atherosclerosis. So researchers at the University of Chicago studied almost 500 healthy midlife adults, none of whom had any existing heart disease or signs of atherosclerosis. So they tracked the health of the coronary arteries of the participants for a number of years, all while assessing their sleep. If you were one of the individuals who obtained just five to six hours each night or less, you were 200 to 300% more likely to suffer calcifications of your coronary arteries over the next five years. So that's pretty scary. And another culprit, along with increased blood pressure and atherosclerosis, is the sympathetic um, nervous system overdrive. So the sympathetic, you think of as your fight or flight response. As you're sleep deprived, um, when you're sleep deprived, you, your heart beats faster and the the actual rate of blood pumped through your vasculature increases. And with that comes this hypertensive state of your blood pressure. At the same time, you're also getting this release of cortisol, which again is triggered by this overactive sympathetic nervous system. And one undesirable consequence of this sustained you know, cortisol is the constriction of these blood vessels. And this even triggers an even greater increase in blood pressure. So it's this vicious cycle again. So compare this cascade of harm to the healing benefits that you would get from, let's say, a normal night of sleep. During deep NREM, specifically, <clears throat> the brain communicates a calming signal to the fight-or-flight uh, sympathetic branch of the body's nervous system. As a result, deep sleep prevents this escalation of this physiologic stress that is synonymous with like increased blood pressure, heart attack, heart failure, and stroke. So again, we're seeing again this association with cardiovascular disease and sleep. <coughs> okay, sorry. How about sleep and metabolism? And uh, diabetes and weight gain. So how does a lack of sleep hijack the body's effective control of blood sugar? Was it because, was it this blockade of like, blockade of insulin release, removing the like instructions for cells to absorb glucose? Or have the cells themselves become unresponsive to like an otherwise normal and present uh, message of insulin? And that's actually the reason, the latter. So after participants had been restricted to just four to five hours of sleep for a week, the cells of these tired individuals had become far less receptive to insulin. In the sleep-deprived states, the cells were stubbornly resisting the message from insulin and refusing to open up their surface channels. So they were not allowing glucose into the cell. They were not responding to insulin. And again, this is leading to insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, 
and a bunch of uh, metabolic, you know, metabolic disorders. And when you sleep, uh, when your sleep becomes short, you're also gaining weight. And this has to, this is because of a few reasons. At fault are mainly hormones, really. So inadequate sleep decreases the satiating signals in your brain, um, you know, leptin, and increases levels of ghrelin. And they also discovered that when you get, you know, inadequate sleep, you're also getting um, more circulating levels of endocannabinoids, which, you know, similar to marijuana, they are stimulating your appetite. So we're getting lower leptin signals, higher ghrelin signals, and more endocannabinoids, and this all causing us to eat more and gain more weight. And of course, cravings as well. So based on evidence gathered over the past three decades, the epidemic of insufficient sleep is likely a contributor to this epidemic of obesity. So epidemiological studies have established that people who slept less who sleep less are the same individuals who are more likely to become overweight or overbeast or obese and we are now observing these effects very early in life three-year-olds um, sleeping just 10 and a half hours or less have a 45 percent increased risk of being obese by age seven than those who got 12 hours of sleep a night <clears throat> so sleep in the reproductive system Take a group of lean, healthy young males in their mid-20s and, and limit them to just five hours of sleep a night for one week, as a researcher's uh, group did in University of Chicago. Sample the hormone levels circulating in the blood of these participants, and you'll find a marked drop in the testosterone relative to their own baseline levels of testosterone when fully rested. The size of the hormonal blunting effect is so large that it effectively ages a man by 10 to 15 years in terms of testosterone uh, virality. In terms of women, we see routinely sleeping less than six hours a night cause a 20% drop in the follicle-stimulating hormone, which is needed just prior to ovulation and also conception. So we're not getting this FSH rise in women, and we're getting this lowering of testosterone in men. Now, last but not least, last but not least, is the sleep in the immune system. So Dr. Michael Irwin at, the, at UCLA had performed landmark studies revealing just how quickly and comprehensively a brief dose of short sleep can really affect your cancer-fighting immune cells. Examining health, healthy young men, Irwin dis- demonstrated that a single night of four hours of sleep swept away 70% of the natural killer cells circulating in the immune system. Another study, a large European study of almost 25,000 individuals, demonstrated that sleeping six hours or less was associated with 40% increased risk of developing cancer relative to to those who slept seven hours a night or more. So again, this 40% increased risk of developing cancer. And in a number of other studies, there's this other researcher named uh, Gozel or Gozal. He had shown that the immune immune cells called tumor-associated macrophages are one of the root causes of this influence of sleep loss. So he found that sleep deprivation diminishes one form of the macrophages called M1 cells that otherwise help combat cancer. Yet sleep deprivation conversely boosts another 
type of macrophage called M2 cells, which promoted cancer cell growth. So this combination helped explain this devastating carcinogenic effect seen in mice when their sleep was disrupted. So that's the end of part two. We're seeing this, how sleep is so important, especially for the four major killers of uh, Americans, those being diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and Alzheimer's. We're seeing the importance of sleep for not only learning new information, but consolidating new information. We're seeing sleep and how through the lymphatic system, we're getting this 10 to 20 times fold increase in the actual movement of the CSF in the brain. And again, we're seeing how sleep and and is associated with, with association with cardiovascular disease. We're seeing it's increased, increases our blood pressure, increases our sympathetic nervous system. We get cortisol through the roof. All this is occurring, you know, from a lack of sleep. We're seeing sleep again, this sort of insulin resistance. Our cells are not responding to insulin when we are sleep deprived. We get like this metabolic crippling at nighttime. Um, again, this is why sleep is the cornerstone or one of the pillars of longevity and aging. It's so important. It hits everything upstream. Or it, hit, it, hit, it hits everything downstream, I'd, I'd say. It hits the cardiovascular disease, it hits cancer, it hits the diabetes, it hits all these things that are killing Americans. So we fix the sleep, we, f- we work on our sleep, and we decrease the chances substantially of developing all these diseases and living a longer, healthier life. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you learned something, and I hope you tune in next time for part three, which is all about dreaming. So thanks for listening.